Hi, everyone, and welcome back. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins. I'm so glad you're here today. My guest today is one of the most articulate speakers I have met, and we really hit it off during this interview. Her name is Melody Wilding. She is an executive coach, human behavior expert, and author of Trust Yourself, Stop Overthinking, and Channel Your Emotions for Success at Work. She has coached hundreds of private clients from CEOs and Fortune 500 executives to leaders from the U.S. Department of Education, the Federal Reserve, and the United Nations. She teaches graduate-level human behavior and psychology at the Sylvan School of Social Work at Hunter College in New York. Her writing is regularly featured on Medium and in the Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Forbes, Business Insider, and Quartz. Her advice has been featured in the New York Times, The Cut, Oprah Magazine, NBC News, U.S. News, and World Report, and more. Her book is fantastic. She talks about the superhuman power of sensitive strivers, as she calls them. These are individuals who are both highly sensitive and high performing, but they are worried about how they appear to others. They struggle with overthinking, emotional reactivity, perfectionism, and the ability to set clear boundaries, which can hold them back from reaching their full potential as leaders and professionals. I have some of these traits I could recognize in myself, and I certainly have employees who are sensitive strivers. So I really appreciated her book and uh, the advice that she gave in this interview. I've already put some of it into play, and I've even bought one of these books for um, a person on my team because it was so helpful. Filled with all kinds of exercises that will help you overcome the feelings of being too sensitive and how to manage boundaries and emotional reactivity and fight that ever-present perfectionism. So hang tight and I'll be right back with Melody. All right, welcome back everyone. I'm so excited to introduce my guest, Melody Wilding, to you. Melody, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right, let's just jump into it. So you're a human behavior expert and executive coach. Tell us what compelled you to write your new book, Trust Yourself, Stop Overthinking, and Channel Your Emotions for Success at Work. This book really came about through my professional and my personal experiences really coming together. So as you mentioned, my background is as a human behavior professor. I've been coaching now for 10 years. And I, in my work with clients, I tend to work with mid-level, senior-level leaders. And I kept seeing a constellation of challenges come up again and again. Things like self-doubt, imposter syndrome, lack of boundaries, lack of assertiveness, and had also had these challenges in my own life. So in my own personal life, ever since I was a kid, have been more highly sensitive, have been more affected by everything around me, but also very high achieving. So putting a lot of pressure on myself to succeed, always feeling like I need to be more and be doing more. And I saw those same patterns in my clients. And so that really led me to define the concept that I go into in the book, the idea of being a sensitive striver, having that combination of traits, but fundamentally that as a sensitive striver, what we struggle with the most is a lack of trust, a lack of belief in ourselves and our own capabilities. So hence, that's how we arrived at Trust Yourself. I love it. I love it. So deep, do a little bit of deeper dive into what a sensitive striver is so that you bring that to life to our listeners. Yeah. A sensitive striver is a high achiever who is also highly sensitive. 
So this is someone who is driven, career-oriented, but also thinks and feels everything more deeply. So what we're talking about is about 15, 20% of the population, about one in five people, that is wired differently, that has a biological disposition, a personality trait difference that leads them to be more perceptive, observant. They tend to be more attuned to their own emotions as well as those of other people and what's happening around them. Um, But they're also very ambitious. Um, So like I said, they put a lot of pressure on themselves to succeed. They set high goals, they go after them, but many times they can take on too much or be but too much of a perfectionist. So that quality of sensitivity and achievement can be a tremendous asset when leveraged correctly, but sensitive drivers were not really given the tools to understand or leverage our qualities, which can lead to many of the downsides. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's a difficult place to be a sensitive striver in a workplace where maybe you don't have uh, leaders or management who helps you be able to, as you call, turn your sensitivity into a superpower. Um, so what are some of your tips that, uh, what are some tips that you can give to listeners about how do you turn the, the sensitivity into uh, a competitive advantage or a superpower as you call it? Yeah, the fundamental framework that underlies the book is this idea of channeling your strive qualities, which are the six core qualities that make up being a sensitive striver. And this is important because once you know what your strive qualities are, you know where you are most out of balance and you can create a plan to get more back into balance. So those strive qualities, the first is sensory sensitivity. So being very uh, attuned to your surroundings, but also very, very easy, easily overstimulated when put under pressure or under stress. Then we have thoughtfulness, being uh, a deep thinker, reflective, intuitive, which can look like overthinking or indecision if not leveraged correctly. We have responsibility, being dependable, you follow through. Sometimes too much, you're willing to sacrifice your own well-being. Inner drive, the ambition piece, really being driven, wanting to make an impact. You can take on too many goals and set the bar way too high. Vigilance, sensing subtleties in people's behavior, which makes you very effective at influencing and understanding others, being empathetic. But uh, you can become overly... Uh, overly vigilant and concerned with how other people are perceiving you. And then last, we have emotionality, which is feeling big emotions, having a lot of complex emotional responses, um, both positive and negative. So the richness of the joy and excitement, but also getting stuck in anger and frustration. And so I offer that because if anybody identifies as a sensitive striver, then you may automatically say, oh, emotionality, that's the big one, where I'm out of balance. And so it gives you a way to prioritize and focus where you should put your efforts. And so what does an effort look like? Let's say emotionality is uh, where you're out of balance. What are some tips that you would give to, to, to finding more attunement? Yeah. So in the book, I have an entire chapter on managing your emotions more effectively, turning them into a competitive advantage. Because what we know is that emotional intelligence and specifically emotion regulation is what makes an effective leader. 
So in that chapter, I really go into the idea that your emotions are energy in your body and you need to metabolize them like you would any other sort of anxious energy that you have. But we often don't think of them like that. We push them down, we try to ignore them and just barrel through our work and that doesn't work. You exhaust yourself or you blow up in another way. So in that chapter, I really advocate for grounding yourself, which can look like any number of activities. But the point there is to manage your nervous system. And for sensitive strivers, that's more important because we have a more highly calibrated nervous system. So for example, many of my clients before they have a meeting, take two minutes to do a two minute meditation or to close their eyes for a couple of minutes, because 80% of our sensory stimulation, especially now when we're staring at screens all day, comes through our eyes. And if you go into uh, a meeting or a conversation already overstimulated, it's significantly more likely that you are going to get overly emotional because you're not working with your full set of resources. So grounding is really important for maintaining that physiological balance and really keeping your emotionality in check. Yeah, I love that. I think whether you're a sensitive striver or not, that is good advice for everybody. Um, that's one of the things I've been working on. I, I call myself very passionate, but sometimes it can come across as maybe, um, aggressive or assertive. And, and Mm -hmm. so it's along those lines of how do I stay cool, calm and collected and grounding is a huge way to do that. I just had an example Mm -hmm. last week where I had to walk into a high stakes conversation and I had that you know, sense of the, that flight or flight stimulation happening. I could feel the stress hormones going through my bloodstream. I was like, okay, how do I ground myself and calm myself so that I am prepared to effectively hold this conversation and not get emotional and, uh, and, and remain cool, calm and collected. So I think that's really great advice, uh, whether you're a sensitive striver or not. So many leaders, I think, react instead of respond. Good advice, good advice. All right, so what are some other tools sensitive people can use to manage stress? I think now more than ever, boundaries is key. (laughs) Especially now where so many people are working from home, work and life is blended, you can work around the clock And what I'm finding too, uh, this goes for leaders, managers, everyone across the board, that there's almost this paranoia about proving our worth in this environment, that if I show I'm online all that time, or if I'm in every meeting, then I feel a greater sense of control um, amidst all this ambiguity. So boundaries is so important now more than ever. And specifically, when I coach people and I offer this as a tool in the book, is to use your emotions as a guide here. And specifically, to look for where you feel the emotion of resentment, where you feel that sense of bitterness or indignation towards someone or a situation arising. For example, maybe you said you would help a colleague with an initiative and it was supposed to be temporary a month or two, and now it's been three or six months, uh, and you're still helping out more than you should, for example. So really identifying what those situations are, um, or I'll give you an example. Today, I was coaching a client who is a founder of a consulting business, and 
when I took him through this, he realized that he was feeling really resentful at his team and his business partner for constant interruptions throughout the day. That people were coming to him, they were scheduled meetings over times he had blocked out. His business partner would come to him and say, hey, do you have a few seconds to chat? And he would always say, yes, okay, and then feel resentful afterwards. And so it's a clear sign that you have let something go on for too long, that you need to say no and you need to set some limits. Yeah, that's a great example. I just had a conversation with an employee about that yesterday, in fact, and he is in management and he's like, I'm in too many meetings and I really need deep thinking time to feel successful. And so I said, all right, well, let's set some boundaries (laughs) and um, and have no meetings Friday and set two hours aside Mm -hmm. on a Tuesday. And he was like, I can do that. And so, you know, I think that maybe for some people who aren't in control, uh, like, you know, a business owner or an executive, um, you know, some people might not feel comfortable setting those kinds of boundaries. So how do you advise your clients to, to do that when they don't feel like they're in a position of power, maybe? Well, let me say too that I'm so glad to hear you're doing that new meeting Fridays. That's actually when I give talks or when I coach companies that say, how do we get more out of our sensitive strivers? That's exactly what I say is you have to culturally build in that space for processing. So that is fantastic. Now, when you don't have as much control, there still is something to be said for being more assertive and pushing back where you need to. So for example, if your manager comes to you and says, hey, I need this by Friday, and you are already, your plate is over full, coming back with a workable compromise to say, I'm not able to get this entire report to you by Friday, but what I can do is provide to you this first part of it or get a first draft done in that time. Or to make a a proposal for why blocking out, why going, Uh, going offline or having heads down time from 3 to 5 p.m., how does that benefit the business? What is the business case here? Not just saying I'm going to be offline because I need my quiet time, but making a business case to convince that person of the value that they'll get as a result of giving that to you. I love that. I love that you're bringing a a solution. Here's what I need. Here's the solution. Here's the benefit. I think that's great advice. Exactly. Yeah, Mm -hmm. nice. All right, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about imposter syndrome. So you talk about this a lot in your book and you mentioned it in um, in the reason why you wrote the book. Uh, So what exactly is imposter syndrome and why is it so prevalent today? Yeah, imposter syndrome is the sneaking suspicion that despite your accomplishments, you are a fake or a fraud. So fundamentally, it's about having a difference between your your self-perception and reality. So you actually are accomplished and successful, but you don't feel that way. You don't feel good enough. You think your success was a result of luck or connections. You have trouble taking compliments and accepting praise. You may fall into procrastination because you fear putting yourself out there or completing tasks or projects because it will reveal you don't know what you're doing. Or you go the other direction and you're such a perfectionist, you overwork to overcompensate for your insecurities. Yeah. Uh, I just had another conversation with an employee who was fighting the same thing. And she's this brilliant, brilliant person. So incredible, so much talent. And she was in that overwork. Um, and she said, I feel like, 
the only reason I'm successful is because I work harder than anybody else. I'm not innately talented at anything. And I've mm -hmm. always gotten through life by just working really hard and being really prepared, over-prepared as I call it. And I was blown away because that is so not the perception that anybody else has, but it's how she deeply felt. And it was, mm -hmm. it's torturing to her. So how do you advise people to get out of that that spiral of imposter syndrome and show up as your authentic self and with self-confidence. Yeah, you know, at the core of imposter syndrome is negative self-talk, is that script in our head that says, you're not good enough, you need to work harder than everybody else to prove your worth. And so tackling that negative self-talk is fundamental because your self-talk and your beliefs about your capabilities then dictate your actions, right? So when I am working with people on a, a strategy I offer in the book is naming that voice of imposter syndrome, naming your inner critic. This is really powerful because it helps you gain separation from it. It helps you diffuse yourself from your inner critic so you see it as something that's separate from you. You get a moment of pause to more intentionally choose your thoughts rather than just automatically buying to the script of I'm not good enough and I'm going to fail at this if I if I try. I shouldn't raise my hand because everyone will think what I say is stupid. If you can say, for example, my imposter is named Bozo. Yours might be the little monster. It might be uh, Cruella DeVille, I've heard. I have one client that has uh, calls his Darth Vader and he has a little Darth Vader Lego figure that sits on his desk to, you know, he tells Darth to quiet down when he needs to. And so this can be a really handy tool for even cultivating the awareness that you need to start recognizing and changing those imposter syndrome thoughts. That's great, great suggestion. Um, all right, let's talk a little bit about the worst hangover of your life. So you talk <laughs> about the honorable hangover. Uh, what does that mean? And, and how do you go about undoing that hangover? Or maybe I should say, sure. how do you go about recovering from that hangover? <laughs> sobering up, sobering up. So yeah, the go. honorable hangover, yeah, is a, is a term I coined because I saw this pattern among my clients who are lifelong high achievers. You know, the A plus, gold star, good kids that want to get an A plus in everything that they do, including in their work lives. And I will still to this day have clients tell me, I feel like I'm not getting an A plus at work. And that is just, it's not acceptable to me, even though they're not being graded on it anymore, or they get start, you know, five stars across the board on their performance reviews. So that is the honor roll hangover. It's this addiction to achievement, the addiction to validation and external uh, rewards and re recognition that follows us from our upbringing in our school years into our professional lives, but it morphs to look a little different. So the honor roll hangover in particular is a mix of perfectionism, not necessarily thinking you need to be flawless because most of us know intellectually that's not possible, but perfectionism in the form of harsh self-recrimination, really harsh self-criticism. Uh, perfectionism, people-pleasing, saying yes to everything, uh, morphing your opinion if other people disagree, going along with people's ideas even though you don't agree with them, and over-functioning, which I see a lot with leaders. 
And overfunctioning is when you uh, fix situations, you rescue other people, you overfunction, you do more than your share of responsibility, including trying to take responsibility for people's emotions and reactions, which can create a dynamic where other people underfunction. They don't have to step up. They don't have to come to the table with their own ideas, for example. So perfectionism, people-pleasing, overfunctioning. I like that. I like that. I like that better than um, enabling because that's just such an, it doesn't even, yeah, it doesn't even make sense. Like you're enabling it. No, you're over-functioning, which is causing the enablement. So it puts it back on you. I really like that. I think that's, um, that's a great way to look at it. So let's talk a little bit about this um, seeking external validation. Why do sensitive strivers seek external validation and approval and what can they do to break their need for that? Yeah, a couple of reasons. You know, we are naturally empathetic people. We want people to like us. That's a natural human drive. But for so many sensitive strivers, it goes from a need to a dependency. And that's for many reasons. You know, people who are sensitive strivers all their life have been told, you're too sensitive. You take things too personally. Really, you should be different than you are. Don't trust yourself. Look to everyone else. You're wrong. So try to be different and listen to what other people say because they know better. So that dynamic gets set up very early. But even still, that sort of that inner drive in us wants us to be the best. And that can get taken too far where we become so attached to what other people think and their perceptions. It's an extension of our natural vigilance because we're paying so much attention to other people. We become... um, so over attuned to that, that we, we lose ourselves in it. And so, you know, neurologically speaking, sensitive strivers have more active mirror neurons, which are the empathy neurons in the brain that sense behavioral nuances and, and changes in people's behavior and understands their emotions. And so um, those are a few reasons why cognitively we have, um, we have a stronger pull for external validation. And so how do you break that? Yeah, this is, and that's, that's what the entire book is about, moving from a need for external validation to trusting yourself. One tool that I love to offer people that I think is effective no matter where you fall, you know, on the, on the org chart, is creating a brag file which is just having a document where at the end of the day, you reflect on your top three wins or the top three moments you were proud of yourself, where you acted with integrity, you acted in accordance with your values, you had a hard conversation, you tackled some sort of resistance, you did have a win, you got good feedback or some sort of praise, for example. But that's really important for starting to take in what you're doing well, not um, falling into the imposter syndrome that makes us look at just what are our weaknesses, but also starting to give yourself more recognition and building that muscle rather than just waiting for other people to notice it within you. Yeah, great suggestion. So how does how does fake it till you make it uh, fit into this? So you talk about it not working. Uh, so what is fake it till you make it and why doesn't it work for sensitive strivers? Yeah, fake it till you make it is that idea that uh, it's commonly talked about with imposter syndrome, that if you just act confident or you act like you have it all together, you will have it all together or other people will, will perceive you as that. And what 
I think is problematic about this is that it's uh, it's putting a Band-Aid on a wound. For example, you're trying to just make the outside look good, but you're not doing anything to address the root cause of the problem. And so fake it till you make it tends to, it tends to, we have a shiny outside, but the, how we feel on the inside ends up not matching that. And so let's say you're taking on a project that's going to, you know, stretch your zone of competency. I call it that instead of stretch your yes. comfort zone. Uh, right. So mm-hmm. and, and you don't want to fake it till you make it. But you're also worried that if you say, hey, I'm not really sure how to go about doing this, we'll make you somehow maybe not get the project. Um, so what advice do you have for people to, you know, to show up and be honest, but still say, I may not know how to do this, but still say I can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's fundamentally believing in your own resourcefulness, right? And in the book, I talk about how doing hard things is so crucial because that's how you build a sense of confidence and competence is through putting yourself in hard situations and building up that uh, trust in your own capabilities. And so I think there's there's a balance here, right? Because you do have to straddle someone's perception of your mm-hmm. capabilities with also being honest and true to yourself. So I think you would be able to say, look at what are your transferable skills? For many people, uh, you may have been on a project that was uh, semi-similar to this in the past, or perhaps this is a skill set you leverage often in your role, but it's just parlaying it to a different industry or a different client, for example. And you, I think it's important that you come to the table not being apologetic. And often sensitive strivers are extremely apologetic about... I don't want to say their shortcomings, but about the fact that I have gaps, which anyone would have gaps. Um, but instead of coming to the table and saying, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm not sure if I can do this. Coming to the table and saying, I have a background in XYZ, part of this project. Here are the areas I am fully confident in. These other areas I may need some assistance in. Would it be possible for me to consult a subject matter expert on this other team about this? Or is there someone I could ask questions? Or I may need some additional training and support. But coming from a place of strength and um, I can do this, I'm committed to this project and not apology. Great advice. All right, so how do sensitive people overcome the dreaded self-sabotage that happens so often in life? <laughs> yeah, you know, self-sabotage is is very sneaky. And uh, I think one way I see it happen a lot is in the way we set goals. And so as sensitive strivers, many times we set ourselves up for failure by taking on too much, or we make our goals very all or nothing. We set our aims so high that it's impossible to achieve. And then when we don't achieve them, we feel bad about ourselves. And then to punish ourselves, we set the goal even higher. And I call that moving the goalpost, where we change the bar as to what defines success before we've even even reached it. And that is self-sabotage in action. And so what I advocate for in the book is tiering your goals, breaking them down into levels of achievement so that getting there is not so binary. So starting with your commit level of your goals, that is your base level of what qualifies for success. So maybe that's reaching out to one client per week, for example. 
Then you have your challenge level, which should feel like a bit of a stretch. And then you have your crush it level, which is what would happen if everything came to fruition and the sun, moon, and stars all aligned and everything worked out perfectly. And you could do this with income levels, for example, with a certain amount of clients you have to reach out to. The example I give in the book is a client who uh, wanted to build her network and did this with uh, not only uh, networking events that she wanted to go to, but also putting herself out there in other ways, getting speaking engagements on panels and things like that. So setting yourself up, focusing on the tiny wins and small sustainable successes rather than this all or nothing approach. All right. In your book, you talk about the communication trifecta and I love how you describe it. Can you please explain what it is and why it's so helpful in situations um, like these that we've been talking about? Sure. So the communication trifecta is a model I share in the book for mastering the art of more assertive communication. So it's three parts. It's what you do, which is the actions you take. It's what you say, the content of your message, and it's how you say it. So your body language and your delivery. And so how is it useful in trying to be more assertive in, in communication? Whenever you want to be assertive in a situation, you can think of each of these separate pillars of the communication trifecta. So for what you do, the actions you take, if you are assertive, that looks like making explicit direct requests, not dancing around what you want or expecting somebody else to read your mind. Listening to other people, highlighting what's going well in equal measure with what criticisms you have. Taking initiative and being proactive to reach out to someone before they need to reach out to you. In terms of what you say, that this is where crafting the content of your message. So breaking down your highlights, breaking down the structure of what you want to share into short headlines that you can have in front of you during the conversation to keep yourself on track. Speaking concisely, not over-explaining yourself. Mm -hmm. Dropping prefaces and qualifiers that, you know, I know this is going to sound silly. This is probably not a good idea. Anything that undermines or bloats your language. And last is your body language and your delivery. And that even matters now in this virtual environment. How you look, the type of lighting you have, your sound, the keeping a calm level tone to your voice, particularly if you're dealing with conflict. Using silence, not having to fill every single second of the conversation. Sitting upright. I, I can't tell you how many times I have coached clients through interviews or presentations and they are swirling in their chair or, you know, have their shoulders hunched over. And all of that communicates a message. And then also making wise choices around context. If you have hard news to deliver, that is not the type of thing you want to be sending over Slack or email. That is the type of thing you want to be having a face-to-face -face conversation about. I love this. I actually just used this model this morning. <laughs> Only it was in a different type of context of how do I make sure that I am not being overly assertive in this conversation? So mm -hmm. I think it's such a useful way to think about things, right? The actions that I'm taking, what I want to say and how I want to say it. And is it making people feel safe and comfortable, especially with working with sensitive strivers, which I was going to have a conversation with the person who was sensitive on my team. So um, I really like that model. I was glad that I uh, could put it into action before this interview. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> All right. So let's talk a little bit about burnout. Um, burnout is real and uh, for many of us, but I think particularly for sensitive strivers. 
So how can we bounce back faster and stronger, even when we feel like we're failing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so many of us, you know, I think this past year has really uh, shown <laughs> what it means to bounce back from setbacks, but also burnout is at an all-time high. The last stats I had seen had put it in the 90%, which is shocking, really just shocking. So everyone is feeling this. Now, in the book, uh, the last chapter is about bouncing back from setbacks, and burnout is one of those. And so what I advocate for is resting, reflecting, and recalibrating. So resting in terms of taking time off from the problem. Sometimes you need to step back from a situation so you can see it more clearly. So regrounding yourself, managing your thoughts like we talked about earlier, all of that falls under there. Reflection is about turning back to yourself, about what do you want, consulting your intuition, giving yourself permission to succeed or fail. And recalibration is the last step, which is revisiting, resetting your goals, um, recreating your boundaries, or looking at overall, is this situation even right for me or do I need to make a more drastic change? Great, great advice. All right, so let's talk a little bit about what leaders can do. So traits that are associated with sensitive strivers are you know, caring and empathy and communication, active listening, all things that we say that we want in the workplace, but doesn't mm-hmm. always um, manifest itself that way. So how can uh, leaders help sensitive strivers be more successful in their organizations? First would be to own your role. And what I mean by that is as a leader, sensitive strivers look up to you. They observe you. They model your behavior more than the typical employee. And so it's important that you be mindful about the example that you're setting. And if you overwork, they will overwork. If you get stressed out, they're going to get stressed out. So taking ownership of your own behavior, also being authentic and vulnerable. These are people who see that as a gesture of trust. They will not hold it against you. So admitting that you don't always know the right answer or you don't always have all of the knowledge, you are not the end all be all, gives them permission to feel the same. So that would be number one. Number two would be giving more conscious, specific feedback. Again, good leadership advice overall, but for sensitive strivers, all the more important. If there is ambiguity or vagueness, a sensitive striver's mind will run wild and they will catastrophize about what it means and create all sorts of stories. So, so many of my clients are told, you need to be more strategic. You need to be more strategic. And they'll say, oh my gosh, what the, I have no idea what that means. So instead of telling people, be more strategic, tell them, don't go too deep on the details in our meetings, stay high level. Or I had one client when he pushed deeper on this, the uh, CEO of the company said, you're not setting aggressive enough goals. We need you to be more strategic. We need you to set bigger, bolder goals. And he said, wow, that never would have been how I interpreted that. So being specific and concrete. And then last was what you mentioned before about making space for deep thinking. Sensitive strivers, you're going to get the best out of them if they have time to reflect, if they have time to make connections and synthesize information. So sending agendas in advance so people have time to prepare, having no meeting periods or days, having do not disturb times. 
um, giving context for why decisions are happening. Sensitive drivers love to understand the bigger picture. They need that because they tend to be those types of thinkers. Um, allowing people, if you have a question that you throw out in a meeting or something you want to explore, offering the option, if you have thoughts right now, you can share them. But if you want to take this back, think about it a little bit, totally fine for us to loop back or to email me about this, or we can have another meeting. Yeah, great, great advice. Okay, two of my final questions that I ask everybody. So the name of this podcast is Reflect Forward. What does Reflect Forward mean to you in the context of trusting yourself? taking constructive action, looking at, okay, maybe you didn't perform your best, but don't be self-critical. Take the lessons from it and figure out how to move ahead. Great. And if you had one piece of advice for leaders who are looking to be exceptional at what they do, what would it be? That your sensitivity and your ambition when leveraged correctly can be your greatest superpower. And so how do they do that? <laughs> With all the tools and trust yourself. But there you go. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> All right. How can people find you? You can find me at MelodyWilding.com and you can find the book wherever books are sold. And is it, and it's out now, correct? Correct. Yes. Uh, congratulations. I'm sure it feels amazing to have launched it. Thank you so much. We're very excited. It debuted as a number one new release on Amazon. It was selected by Apple Books as a best book of the month for May. So we're very pleased so far. Awesome. Great. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Melody. Thank you. All right. Hang tight. I'll be right back. All right. I'm back, everyone. I hope that you learned a lot from that interview. I really enjoyed it. Afterwards, we had all kinds of fun conversations about how to really set sensitive strivers up for success and how to write a book and how to get featured in Forbes. So it was super fun for me and I hope it was fun for you too. All right, that's it for today. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate and review. That is always very helpful for me. Have a great day and I'll see you next week.